Hello and welcome to Swana Region Radio. Swana Region Radio is a weekly review of politics and culture covering the whole region of South and West Asia and Northern Africa that regularly broadcasts on Pacifica Station KPFK, 90.7 FM in Los Angeles and online at kpfk.org. My name is Rana Shriek, here with fellow collective member and co-host Suraya Zaru. Welcome, Suraya. Thank you, Rana. After this airing, our shows are posted as podcasts, which can be found on Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Breaker, and Radio Public. You can also follow our updates on Facebook and Instagram, as well as Twitter. We thank you in advance for sharing our podcasts widely. Today, we have the distinct pleasure of being in conversation with Pakistani-American novelist Sana Balagamwala about her de- debut novel, House Number no. 12, Block Number no. 3, published by Hidden Shelf Publishing. Sana Balagamwala grew up in Karachi, Pakistan. She studied English literature and language at the University of Southern California and has a master's in education from Loyola Marymount University. She is also pursuing a master's in creative writing at the University of Cambridge. House number 12, block number three is her first novel. Before embarking on her writing career, she taught middle school history and literature. Sana lives in Los Angeles with her husband and two children, and she can be reached at her website, www.sanabalagamwala.com, and she's also on Instagram at sana.balagamwala. Um, I'm going to read a little bit from the book's description to sort of give us an understanding of what takes place in it. So I'm quoting here, Karachi, Pakistan, 20th century. Nadia has changed. She has been waking up in the middle of the night in fits of anxiety, avoiding her friends and family, and skipping her university classes. With the recent death of her father, Haji Rahmat, Nadia's condition has further spiraled. There is no acceptable diagnosis for her behavior, and speculations abound. She may have a rare disease, she may be possessed by a jinn, or perhaps she is inclined to madness. Whatever the cause of this mysterious affliction, Zainab, Nadia's mother, is at pains to keep it hidden from the community at large. She is worried Nadia will be labeled as mad, and she knows all too well the taboos that mental illness brings with it. While the country tethers on political unrest and Nadia seems to get worse by the day, the family searches desperately for the cause of and the cure for their daughter's mysterious malady. House number 12, block number three, the home that has sheltered the Rahmat family for decades, narrates and recollects past events, trying to absolve itself of the burden it feels of being privy to the real reason for Nadia's turmoil, but not being able to do anything about it. So thank you, Sana, for writing this wonderful book and welcome to our show. Thank you for having me, Saraya and Rana. It's such a pleasure to be here. So exciting to have you with us today. So before we get into the book and get to the opportunity to discuss it in greater detail, I follow you on your um, Instagram account, Sana. And on the day of your book's release, you posted to social media about your first job at Barnes and Noble's Cafe. Now your book, House Number 12, Block Number 3, can be purchased there, as well as on Amazon and smaller bookstores. For those of us who can only dream of such an achievement, can you begin by sharing a little bit about your journey as a Pakistani born and raised immigrant here in Southern California? Had you always been, um, wanted to be a writer? What was that journey like for you? I always liked writing, but I never thought that I would be a writer. It just seemed like such, I mean, it seemed like something that really talented, brilliant people do. I was like, I have, I, I need to catch up on sleep. I have children. I have a job. It's just something I, I thought would be really cool, but I never really did it. And then when I turned 30, I remember telling my friend, she was like, how exciting, you're 30. And I said, yeah, but it would have been good if I wrote a book. And she said, well, did you start writing? And I said, no, but one day I'll write it. And so I think when I turned 30, I was like, I need to do something like, you know, something on my bucket list. And and of course, we were busy with life. And um, I would often tell my husband that, you know, one day I'm going to write a novel. And he was like, why, why one day? Why not today? Just start. 
And, you know, I was in the middle of preparing actually dinner for my kids when he said that. And I was very, I was a little miffed at him. I said, I just gave birth a few years ago. I've, I'm cooking. Like, how can you say, like, it's a little insensitive to just tell me, go do it. And he said, look, everybody has the same time. And if this is something that means a lot to you, I don't think you should wait. You should just go for it. And I think that sort of tough love from him, it made me kind of registered with me. And I thought to myself, well, if this is something I do want to do, I just need to get on it. So that night I registered for a novel writing class at UCLA Extension. And I was lucky to have a brilliant, brilliant teacher there. Her name's Deborah Reed. She's a novelist. And I think that's where it started in my mind. And in, I got really serious about writing at that time. So when you were thinking about your family and just like recollecting and just the memories of your own experiences, you had never really considered to put them in a book. So they, did that come up like the kind of piecing this together? Did it come after the kind of your commitment to preserving your own history and story, your family story? I think the book started as a way to preserve some of the history in my family stories, you know, when they moved from India to Pakistan and then how they, um, they adjusted to life there and the things that happened. There was, Pakistan has had so much political turmoil in the, it's 70 years. And it was, it was talked about very casually in our family over dinner. Oh, remember when this happened? Oh, remember when he did this? It was just always a point of conversation. So those stories I, I began collecting and then, and I started writing them and very organically, Nadia became a main character in that, in that story. Uh, she just kind of came up and it's not that I knew one girl called Nadia. Um, in fact, I think Nadia was inspired by so many different women. And sadly, I knew many Nadias. I think, I think it's because almost every woman I know has experienced some sort of assault on herself. And at the very least, it's just, it might just be an unwanted look or a cat call, but very often it's much more than that. And I think that was in the back of my mind when I was writing. And and Nadia just became the main character and a very powerful uh, character that I felt I had to write about. And um, I think especially during the period where this novel is placed, um, assault, mental illness was much more taboo than it is even now. And so I remember growing up, um, you know, aunts, mothers, they would hint upon these sorts of things to protect their children. You know, the way we were reminded, don't sit in the front of the car if there's a driver driving cover yourself properly, just don't go you know, there alone, make sure you have a friend with you. So it wasn't directly said, but we read between the lines and we, we knew what they were talking about. And so I think as women, and we, we know things can happen and we know that they've happened, but we vacillate between trying to pretend it didn't happen and protecting each other, but never really coming out and saying it. And I think all of that was in the back of my mind as I, I started collecting my family stories and it kind of turned into this novel about Nadia. Thank you so much for generously sharing that. So we'll get to talk more about Nadia in just a moment. Uh, you open house number 12, block number three with the very beautiful and powerful poetry of Urdu feminist writer Kishwar Nahid's The Grass Is Like Me, which reads, the grass is like me, its true nature revealed when trodden underfoot, but when drenched, does it bear witness to burning disgrace or blazing fury? Could you speak about the impact that Urdu poets like Nahid had on you and continue to have on you as an author and why um, kind of frame your book with this really powerful and beautiful poem by Nahid? Yes, I, 
I went to high school and middle school. My whole life, I grew up in Karachi in Pakistan, and I never studied Kishwar Nahid's poetry and in school. We studied a lot of uh, literature. We studied Eliot, Chaucer, Shakespeare, even some Urdu writers, but we never studied her poetry. And I don't, I don't know why. Um, so I didn't know it as a young adult. I didn't know her work. However, I had begun writing my novel and I was researching women's protests in Pakistan in 1983 after Zia al-Haq uh, came up with his Hudud ordinances. And I came across her work and my mind was just blown because here someone had said so eloquently all the things I had thought of as a young girl growing up, things I had thought of, things I had thought of but didn't know how to say. And here she had already said it all in such a powerful way. And then I began looking up more and more of her poems and reading them. And uh, I was just inspired and, and blown away. And I think because she was so instrumental in the women's protests of 1983, and she's such a proponent of, well, women's rights, but also just rights for individuals that I, I feel very inspired by her. And I, and I wish it was part of our curriculum growing up as Pakistanis to read her work. Yeah, no, it's undeniable to, I mean, I think it's really important, it speaks to your testament to capturing the histories, the complex histories of your own life story, your own family, but the women of Pakistan that were truly um, uh, fearless and unapologetic about their commitment to their communities. Um, so it's important to note that also like the opening poem by um, Nahid suggests and as Nahid herself embodied, um, and as you just noted in her life's work, that Nadia was not a passive member of, of her community. She was a fighter like many of women of the global South. In exchange, discussing the sexual assault of a domestic worker, Nadia is um, acutely aware of the systems of patriarchy that govern her community and speaks up accordingly. In fact, a potential suiting family, a suitor family, the Khans, you write, quote, the Khans had decided to retract their proposal. And that is the proposal of um, Nadia. They had found Nadia to be too politically inclined and outspoken. And while those were great qualities, they just wouldn't be compatible with their family, end quote. While her mother Zainab is perhaps overly optimistic and entrusting of liberal notions of democracy, Zainab is also extremely committed to finding her daughter's suitor as a resolution to perhaps Nadia's angst and anxieties in kind of coming of age. How did you conceive to navigate this tension between Nadia and um, Zainab, generational traumas perhaps and patriarchal norms, but also to capture the beautiful relationship and bond between mother and daughter? Um, that's a really great question. So I think, um, you know, there's always growing up, I felt it. there's always a juxtaposition between, you know, be it like for, for women, at least women growing up uh, in Pakistan, um, be educated, be a modern woman, like, you know, the world is yours, but please get married at a good time. Don't wait too long. And uh, when you meet potential suitors, please be polite. Don't say the wrong thing. Be quiet, be pleasant. Uh, because there's there's no doubt about it. Society can be very brutal to women who don't behave. You know, there's a danger in speaking up. And I just kind of wanted to hint on that uh, in the proposal scene where she kind of is compelled um, to take the conversation to where it's not decorous or appropriate in that sort of a situation. She talks about it. She says something, and immediately the family who has who was very excited for their son to marry her. Uh, suddenly decides she's too outspoken. And, you know, they're like, oh, it, she won't work in our family. She's amazing. But 
it just won't work for us. So I think that's a very small example, but um, it's very telling. You know, we're always told stay in your lane. And I don't think that's something that's actually limited to Pakistan or even South Asian cultures. Um, I see it in the US, it's a reality here. You know, the threat might be more veiled, um, but it's there. You know, we're asked not to take up too much space. We're asked to stay in our lanes. So I think women are constantly having to deal with that and navigate that. Today we are speaking with author Sana Balagamwala about her debut novel, House Number 12, Block Number 3. You are listening to Swana Region Radio on 90.7 FM and streaming online at kpfa.org. So going back to what you were just talking about, Sana, I, I do also love the moment when Zainab says to Nadia, um, I believe you. Right. And I think that's a real sort of shift in their relationship. I think it's so important that you have this depiction of a mother who is able to stand by her daughter, right? Regardless of um, these questions of saving face, right? Um, and thinking about what that would mean for them in their community. Um, and that there's always the possibility that intergenerational strife and um, harmful gender norms can be kind of mended in this way. And so I think that brings me to the more difficult place of how we think about forgiveness when it comes to Uncle G. So his lapses in memory, you know, doesn't absolve him of his actions, but it does kind of hint at the fact that these questions of reconciliation and justice are so complicated, especially when your perpetrator is not removed from your life. Like, you know, this is a person who is in the family, in the neighborhood. Um, and that in some ways, you know, was the reality of the aftermath of partition or it even is the reality of something more ordinary like domestic violence, right? So um, I wanted to ask how you navigated writing his character and particularly his return, both as a perpetrator of violence against Nadia, but also as a victim himself, right? Of a different kind of national violence that's taking place. Oh, that's a really good question and very deep. And um, I love that you said it so well. Um, it's, it's the reality of violence, uh, you know, um, abusers don't go away and sometimes we have to live with them. Even if we, um, and even if we don't live with them, we have to always live with the memory. And I think it becomes, um, I think maybe the way to heal is to speak about it rather than pretend it didn't happen. So I, I wanted Nadia to, I wanted her to be able to take that back, at least to be able to speak. Um, because a lot of, for, for a lot of the time um, as she's suffering, she, she even doesn't talk to anyone much. So I, I wanted to, her to reclaim some part of herself before the novel ended. And uh, with Uncle G, I mean, I think dying was too easy of a, release for him, so I wanted him to come back. And it's very difficult because as, I mean, the, the, the other story which is not written is that he probably will get away with it. People won't 
they won't say anything to him. He doesn't have to deal with the repercussions. It might just be this girl who's mad, who's been possessed by a jinn, who kind of is accusing him, has confused him with someone else. But then at least there's that little bit of hope that um, her mother believed her, other women will believe her, and maybe her story will inspire someone else to speak out. Thank you so much, Sana, for sharing that. And uh, honestly, uh, Sadeh, for that brilliant question, because it really does get at the heart of like what it means to be in intimate spaces with perpetrators of violence, those of who have harmed us. And I think, Sana, what you do so beautifully is you navigate that in a way that gives voice to Nadia without diminishing the like everyday reality of this violence. It's, it's reoccurrence, but also her own journey. And um, perhaps restorative justice and her own healing. And, and I, I really appreciate that. Um, now shifting a little bit. So one of the things that kind of struck me also about your writing was things, objects. So furniture, architecture, specific locations are all important in um, house number 13, block number three, which is exhibited in the title of the book as well. That home that is house uh, number 12, block number three, represented so much more than a place of residence. It was a home where Haji Rahmat Nadia's father first found joy in Pakistan was actually really committed to preserving that space even after his, um, his death. He really wanted his family to hold on to that home. In many ways, the things of banal consequence, um, Haji Rahmat's uh, armchair or the blue chador, a cup of tea, have great significance throughout your novel. They each tell stories of, their, um, uh, of great magnitude. So could you speak a little bit about your relationship to the things that you brought to life in your novel? Oh, of course, I would love to. Um, I think as humans, we have, very, we have a very important relationship with the earth. Uh, and then it also manifests itself in the relationships we have with the places that, in, um, that shelter us, the places we call home. And I always felt that my home was such a big character in my own life. It just, it just became almost like a part of my family. So I think um, having the house narrate the story kind of came from there because I always felt very connected to the space I lived, the place that sheltered me. And then as far as those little things go, you know, the banal things like that old coffee table in your grandmother's living room, maybe the lace fringe of the curtain you might've hidden behind as a child, the teacup with the orange flower your father drank from. Those moments, I think those are the moments that stick in your mind and anchor your memories. And so I, I suppose then life is just really a stringing together of those moments, right? That at that time they seem inconsequential, but in retrospect, they become something so much more. So I think all those, um, all those little things, you know, that I talk about in the novel, the tea, the, the doors, the teacup, the sound of the orange juicer, um, the rug, the, the curtain, they all, I think those are all, um, ways of anchoring the, the novel really for me and to make it real. Um, I love that description too. So I, I guess I have a question about craft. So you talked a little bit about making the narrator of the novel, the house itself. Um, what did that decision offer you as a writer, as opposed to say having one of the characters narrate or having a third person omniscient narrator? I think I wanted a third person omniscient narrator, but I did not want them to have full control. And I think by having the house, it limited my, it limited me and I wanted to work within a limit to see where I could go with it. Just, just as, a, as an experiment really. So that's 
why I chose that narrator. And I think it's kind of connected to the house in a way, but also powerless, right? Which is kind of what the mother feels, what Nadia feels, what we as humans have all felt at some point, like powerless to help someone or help something or help a situation. And I wanted to bring that through um, by using the house as a narrator. It's really wonderful. It also, um... Honestly, Sanada, there's so much for us to just even um, get into even more. That's really beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, so perhaps now we can have the great honor if you could read us a little bit something from the book and then we can have a, a, a conversation. Um, there are so many things for us to piece together uh, just as you were sharing about the house. And I was thinking as a cavity, but it's not like it's an empty cavity, right? It's a cavity that's full of life, but also it doesn't have total control, which is really um, powerful too. Um, gives agency to those bodies that and objects in, inside that occupy its space. So if you could maybe have to do us the great honor of read us, reading us something and sharing that with our listeners, that would be wonderful. Oh, I would love to. Thank you for the opportunity. So, okay, I'll get to it. Chapter one, Karachi, Pakistan, December, 1981. The sound of the doorbell stirs those who slumber, but Zainab is already awake. She switches on the hallway light and hurries to the foyer, glancing for a moment at the walnut long-case clock that stands in the corner. The steel pendulum stoys with resolve, and the minute hand staggers to 12. It is 5 a.m., too early for a guest to call, too early even for the vegetable seller who will come by at sunrise advertising bitter gourd so persistently that she'll buy some just to appease him. It is 5 a.m., Revelers are stumbling home from a night out. The pious are returning home from early morning prayers at the mosque. And those fortunate enough to be asleep are dreaming of those unspoken and unspeakable matters of the heart that emerge from the subconscious and confront us only in the night. Zainab knows who's at the door, but she peeks through the people just to make sure. There has been an upswing in robberies of late. She unfolds the worn out brass lock and with a clang, my door creaks open. It is our gatekeeper. He adjusts his disheveled turban and greets Zainab with heavy eyelids. Behind him stands Appa, her frail form barely visible in the dim light of the overhanging pendant. Thank you for coming, Zainab says. Her voice is hoarse, her face a wrung out rag. Appa steps past the jasmine topiaries into the foyer. Her silver hair is covered with a black muslin scarf. Her feet are wrapped in brown sandals that crisscross her toes like bandages. She has come to see Nadia. Nadia who doesn't remember what day it is and who doesn't seem to care. Nadia who scribbles in notebooks and cries when everyone is asleep. Nadia who sometimes forgets that her father has just passed away. We are still in mourning. I'm so sorry to bother you at this hour, Zainab continues. She wouldn't stop crying. I didn't know what to do. Zainab smooths her kameez and tucks some stray wisps of hair behind her ear. Grace streak her bun, revealing months of forgotten hair appointments. A cool morning breeze wafts in through the open front door, bringing with it the scent of jasmine, as if to remind us that still there is hope. Thank you so much. That was lovely. 
Um, and now sort of hearing you read the beginning, knowing that the house is the one narrating is so lovely because um, it brings me back to what you just said about sort of the house is powerless, but it also has all this knowledge, like it knows what's going on around it. And it knows all these things about the people who live in it. Um, so I'm just still really thinking about this balance that you strike between powerlessness and agency and voice, um, not just in relation to the house, but in relation to each of its characters and particularly the women in it. I'd like to add to what Saraya just mentioned. Um, and as you're reading, Sanel, which thank you so much for generously sharing your work with us, um, just memories and remembrances. So while I did not grow up in Pakistan as a Palestinian who was born and raised in Los Angeles, but just the textured way in which you write um, almost transported me to my own kind of grandparents' home in Palestine and thinking about the, the spaces. Like a lot of my memories are associated with the trees and the home. And as you were just sharing earlier, the curtains and where I would play with my cousins and we would, you know, and it's so powerful to think about how a space, this cavity that is the home um, is truly a source of life and living and survival. So I just wanted to um, thank you for that. And the anchoring that you mentioned, right? So it anchors memories, I think is just extremely powerful. Um, thank you. Yeah. So before we end, Sana, could you perhaps tell us who are the authors that inspired you and any advice that you have for budding writers who might be listening this afternoon? Yes, I. there's a long list of authors. I'll just mention a few. So I, I love Toni Morrison. I love James Baldwin. And I love Khalil Gibran. And he doesn't write novels, but his work, um, his work is just creates a lot of calm and peace in me. So I just will go back to him so often. And advice for um, writers. Um, so there's a joke, which, which is, what do you call a writer who never gives up? And the answer is published. So I suppose that is my advice. Uh, you know, if, if you're starting off writing, treat it as, as a job, even though no one is paying you and no one is waiting for your work, um, honor that time, set aside that time to write and honor it. And, um, and don't give up. The world needs to hear your voice and your story. And uh, the last thing is find a writing community. For me, that really helped to guide me through. It's a very lonely place to write and a community really helps you out. So that would, that's what I would say. Thank you so much, Sana, for sharing so generously of your time and your just brilliance and your beautiful writing. And um, Soraya and I are in the world spaces of writing too. So this is extremely inspiring on a very intimate personal level. That is all the time we have today. Our guest has been author, novelist, Sana Balagamwala. Please be sure to pick up a copy of her debut novel, House Number 13, Block Number 3 from bookshop.org to support independent bookstores. Or you can also find it at Barnes and & Noble and Amazon. And please continue to listen to our podcast by following Swana Region Radio on Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Breaker, and Radio Public. Swana Region Radio is a weekly review of politics and culture covering the whole region of South and West Asia and Northern Africa that regularly broadcasts on Pacifica Station KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Our podcasts can also be found on Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Breaker, and Radio Public. And please follow our updates on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 
Again, thank you, Sana, for joining us this afternoon. We thank everyone in advance for sharing our podcast and this message. We'd like to thank the Swana Collective for helping us, especially Ankanya Param for production assistance, and my co-host, Suraya Zarouk, for helping us bring this show to you. Please continue to listen out for more podcasts and check out our coverage of this and other important issues in South Asia, West Asia, and Northern Africa, the Swana region, on Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, Breaker, and Radio Public. Again, thank you for listening. Yes, sir.